Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Lord, we acknowledge that what we're about to do, Lord, is open your words of life to us. Lord, you loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross for our sins and then to give us your words, Father, so we can understand more about him and how to live and how to be in your kingdom, Father. So I pray as we open this truth, Lord, we we would understand the significance of what we do. We have the ability to see with spiritual eyes, Lord, things we haven't seen before. To apply this truth to our lives, Father, to understand you more deeply and more passionately than ever before. And I pray, Lord, through the power of your spirit that you could transform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, Father. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We are beginning a brand new sermon series this morning through the book of James that we've entitled Faith in Action. And I'm really excited about this study for a couple of reasons. One is I just enjoy more and more just preaching through books of the Bible. I think it's good and healthy for us to spend time in uh, books. I've used the example before of a novel. If you were going to read a novel, you probably wouldn't pick the novel up, randomly open to a page, and read a couple paragraphs. If you did that, you'd have a hard time figuring out exactly what the novel was about. Instead, you start at the beginning of the novel, and you read everything in context so you understand the big picture and the whole story. So it is when we work through a book. As we begin in the beginning of James... We'll get the context and the full understanding that the Lord wants us to get by studying through this. So I'm excited because we're going through this entire book. But I'm also excited because James is such a practical study. We've entitled it Faith in Action because James is going to challenge you as a believer to put feet to your faith. It's extremely practical. Paul, if you've studied any of Paul and read through the writings of Paul in the New Testament, Paul is very good with doctrine and theology, and he kind of gets into the depths sometimes to help us understand what the Lord is teaching us. James doesn't spend a lot of time with doctrine. James doesn't spend a lot of time with theology. James gives us very simple, practical things we need to do in our lives. John MacArthur explained it like this. Speaking of the book of James, it has a practical emphasis, stressing not theoretical knowledge, but godly behavior. James wrote with a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the word of God. Simply put, in the book of James, as Christians, your faith must lead to action. 
And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, over the next several weeks as we study through this to kind of stay with us and follow along, I'm going to ask if you would to pray for me, because anytime we we get into a study like this, I understand there's a lot we're going to cover, there's a lot that needs to be said, and I want you to pray specifically that as we study through this book, that the Lord would really just speak through me to your hearts, because James has got such good things to say. In such practical knowledge and such practical applications, I don't want to mess it up. (laughs) I want the Lord to speak directly to your hearts, and I want you to hear his truth and his word, and I want you to apply it to your lives. And so we're going to read verse 1 of chapter 1 first, give a brief introduction, and then jump right in in verse 2 of chapter 1. So James chapter 1, verse 1, we have it on the screens, you can follow along in your scripture as well. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, just a quick introduction because I don't want to begin the book without you understanding a few facts that will help you uh, process through and understand a little bit better. There are basically three men in the New Testament named James that we read a lot about. We read about James, the son of Alphaeus, James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the half-brother of Christ. And so as we read the beginning of verse 1, we wonder to ourselves, which James are we talking about? Because he doesn't give us any specifics. He doesn't identify himself. This is simply James. Now, most scholars through the centuries have believed and still believe that this was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And so we're going to go, and there are all sorts of books and and commentaries that have been written to kind of back this up. I'm not going to go into the detail of this, but we believe, and I believe, and I'm going to preach from the assumption that this was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James was an important guy. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was called a pillar of the church. Paul wrote a lot about James, this particular James, and his importance in the, the, the first century church. James wrote this book probably between 40 and 60 AD. So it's one of the earliest known Christian writings. So this is a guy that did a lot of things, accomplished a lot of things, wrote an early book helping people understand how to live. But the question always comes up as you read these kind of scholars reports about who wrote this why wouldn't James if he was the brother of Christ tell us it's a good question because if I was the brother of Christ you better know you'd hear about it a couple of times right I wouldn't just I wouldn't kind of hide that you know you'd see me at Walmart I'd be like did I tell you that Jesus was my brother you get, let me show you this selfie I took last week look at this picture of Jesus and I You would think that James at some point would say, Jesus was my brother, you need to listen to what I'm going to say. But he doesn't do that instead. And it's interesting because most scholars believe that James didn't want people to listen to him because he was the brother of Christ. Instead, he wanted people to listen to him simply because he was a faithful servant of the Lord. And that's a big difference. He says that in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, don't worry about who my brother was in my family. Listen to me because I'm willing to serve Christ and I want you to serve Christ as well. And so he writes in kind of the second part of that verse, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greeks. And that's just a little sentence we'd probably just blow right through and not think a lot about. But I want you to understand this is important for our context. 
The dispersion was basically when the, when the Christians were dispersed because of persecution. If you were to read through the book of Acts, uh, Acts 8, Stephen is, is, is martyred. He's stoned to death. The Bible tells us that a great persecution broke out at that moment against the Christian people. And the Christian people that were living in Jerusalem, because of the persecution, scattered. Right? They, were, they, were, they were fearful of their lives. They were fearful to stay in the city of Jerusalem because of the persecution, because of the threats made against them. And so they scattered to all sorts of interesting cities. Now, it's fascinating. This isn't the history of Acts or the, the early church, but it's fascinating. God used that dispersion, these people leaving the city of Jerusalem, this scattering of the people to plant churches all over Asia. It's just fascinating how God did that. But in this context, when James is writing to these people of the dispersion, these people that have been scattered because of persecution, let's just think through this for a second because it's important. These people in this moment reading this letter had just faced great suffering and persecution. They had been dispersed. They had been kicked out. They had fled for their lives. They were fearful at any moment they could be arrested, tortured, beaten, crucified. And so James writes to a group of people that had been through great suffering. Now let's fast forward about 2,000 years. A lot of us have been through great suffering, haven't we? Maybe you're in the middle of it. Maybe you've just come out of it. Maybe you're just starting it. And if you're not in the middle of suffering right now, chances are at some point you're going to go through a trial. That's just life. The old saying is it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And so as we read this text, beginning in verse 2 here in just a minute, I want you to understand, James is writing to people that had suffered great trials and persecution. And so the, the, really the, the foundation of what he writes, in the, especially the beginning chapter uh, of 1, there's the several verses in the beginning here, are all about dealing with trials and suffering and difficult times. And so if you've been through a trial or going through a trial, see one kind of on the horizon, and you've asked yourself the question, how should I navigate from a Christian biblical perspective through the trials of life, what I need to be doing biblically to follow Christ, James is going to give you the model. And so right off the bat, he's going to be practical, he's going to be helpful, and I love what he does here. If you were to read, I mentioned Paul just a few minutes ago. Paul, oftentimes when he writes, he'll begin with a greeting, and he'll use 8 or 10 or 12 verses to say, I love you, thanks for praying for me, God's doing great things, I can't wait to come back and see you, I remember you often in my prayers. He's got many verses that just kind of talk about his love and a greeting. James gives us a very quick Here's who I am. I'm writing to the tribes. And then verse 2, he just kind of hits us. There's no chance to kind of settle in here and get comfortable. In the very beginning, James gives us maybe one of the most difficult things you're ever going to read in Scripture. Let's pull it up on the screen. You read through it in the Bible as well. James chapter 1. Again, verse 1, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, and now he hits us. I'm going to read this slow because I want you to take this in. This is a big deal right here. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And let's just ask the question here as we, as we stop and begin to think through these verses. As we face trials, as we face difficulties, as we face all sorts of challenges in life, how do we navigate through those? How do we persevere through our trials? How do we live our lives in the middle of our trials in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ? James answers that question. Here's the first truth. We're going to go through three important truths this week and then some more next week that relate to this. But the first thing James wants us to see, if you're going to persevere through trials, the first thing you need, number one, is a joyful attitude. If you're going to navigate the trials of life and you're going to trust the Lord and allow Him to work, you've got to do it, number one, with a joyful attitude. Now, verse two, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, may be one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. Bring verse two up for me again, if you would, please. James just kind of begins in a difficult place. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is a difficult passage because that doesn't seem normal to us. Our first response in a trial isn't usually joy. When you face sickness, you're probably not very joyful about it, are you? I had the great privilege a couple of weeks ago when I, when I got back from Africa of having a stomach bug for the first three or four days. And I was, you know, as I was running back and forth, you can kind of fill in the blanks there. As I was running back and forth, I wasn't praising the Lord. Oh, this is such a joyful time for me, Lord. Thank you as I rush in here and fall on my knees. Lord, thank you. This is such a joyful time. We don't find a lot of joy in sickness, do we? It's not our normal response. When we lose a loved one, it's hard to find joy in that, isn't it? When we deal with some sort of a difficult tragedy in our life, a a sickness or a disease or a loved one that has a problem, we usually don't react with joy, do we? The, The first thing we think about when we lose our job isn't joy, is it? When you have a rough day at work and you're driving home to your spouse, you have a hard time finding joy, don't you? And so it's almost as if James is confused here. James, you're telling me in in various trials, whenever I meet those, I need to find joy. So what's joyful about the things of life that are difficult? What's joyful about our trials? Well, look at how he begins verse 2. It's a very important word. It's something we need to understand. Count. Now, some translations use the word consider. Consider it all joy. James says we we need to count this joy or consider this joy because this isn't the way we would normally react. Now, I'm going to give you a truth that I think is awfully important. If you're taking notes, you ought to write it down because I think it kind of hits the nail on the head and helps us understand the perspective here. James is instructing us in how to think, not how to feel. You understand that? Let me just say that again. Count, consider, 
think about. James says this is how you should think, not necessarily how you're going to feel. It's all about perspective. Because it's very hard to find joy, to feel joy in difficult times, isn't it? It's very difficult to feel joy when you get sick or a loved one gets sick or someone dies or you lose your job or you go through various trials. That's not usually your normal response. But we cannot, as we go through trials, if we're going to navigate them biblically now, we cannot allow our emotions to dictate our reaction to our trials. Because if you're waiting to feel good, you probably won't. Instead, you've got to think good. You've got to think joyful thoughts. John MacArthur said it like this. The natural human response to trials is not to rejoice. Therefore, the believer must make a conscious commitment to face them with joy. Okay, so I get that, Adam. I, I, I'm, I'm going through this trial now. There's a difficult thing with job or a, a sickness or the loss of a loved one. And I'm, I'm going through these trials. I get that. But why in the world should I even force myself to think joyful thoughts? Much less feel them. Why, why should I think or consider or count it joy? Well, James answers that question in verse 3. Pull that up if you would for me, please. James says you need need to count it all joy for you know, and that's an interesting word right there, know. It's not a debate, there's not a question about it, just real clear in the mind of James. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, James makes this interesting argument here. You, You need to count and consider it joy because the Lord's up to something in your life. The trial you're going through has a purpose. It's going to lead you to a certain place. It's going to produce within you steadfastness of faith. You understand that? So just a kind of a radical thought here. We begin to see our trials not as difficulties, but as opportunities to grow in our walk with Christ. That's a very different perspective. I bet most people in here have had the opportunity at some point in their lives to either exercise or diet or do something to be a little more healthy. This time of year especially. This is the time of year and we decide once and for all we're going to lose that weight, we're going to get in shape, we're going to eat better and so we go to the gym or we start dieting or whatever the case may be. We want to be healthy, we want to lose a little weight and then we all have gone through that. And I've kind of been doing that a little bit myself and trying to lose a little weight and trying to be a little more healthy and, and trying to run a little bit more. And, and so I get up on this treadmill. I try to go several times a week and I run. And as I'm in the middle of running and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting to the point that it's starting to get a little hard, the first thought that crosses my mind isn't joy or happiness. That's not usually what I'm thinking. What I'm usually thinking is, how much longer is this thing going to... I'm looking at you know, the timer. I'm looking at the distance. I'm thinking, how much longer do I have to endure this as I begin to realize, you know, my lungs are hurting a little bit as I'm doing this. There's a, there's a real pain in my legs all of a sudden that I'm feeling the farther I run. This is not real comfortable for me. I'm not thinking, this is so joyful and so exciting and so wonderful. Dude. I'm thinking, how much longer do I have to do this? But we do it, right? We diet or exercise or work hard, not because in the moment it's necessarily fun. I don't, I don't think anybody likes to eat food that's real healthy. We like to eat good food, right? And fatty food and junk, that's what we like to eat. But we eat the good food and we run and we exercise. Why? Because we know there's something we're trying to accomplish. 
So, so we don't find joy in the moment of the exercise and the hard work. We find joy in the result we know we're going to have. You understand that? We have to look at our trials like that. As we go through these things, the, the, the moments we're going through them may not be happy or fun or exciting, but we find joy in our faith and our walk because we know within our trials it's producing steadfastness. It's producing something. The Lord is using these trials in our lives to shape us and to mold us and to deepen our walk and to deepen our faith. Now that's hard for us to see. It's hard for us to feel. So we have to consider it joy. We have to count it joy. We move from our emotions and our feelings to our mind and our thoughts. Now let's continue looking again at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if you're going to navigate the trials of life in a Christ-like manner, if you're going to navigate the trials of life in such a way that the Lord uses you and strengthens your faith, the first thing you need to do is you need to find and have a joyful attitude. The second thing you need to do, number two, you need to have a maturing attitude. Faith. See, as you walk through the trials, you begin with a joyful attitude. Lord, this isn't easy. I don't feel this way, but I'm going to think joyfully because I know you've got a purpose. I know you've got a plan. I know you're doing something in the midst of this trial. And I want this trial to lead me now to a maturing faith. Because James says to us, there's there's this process here. You're you're not going to wake up tomorrow and be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Not going to happen. What is going to happen is through this process of trials, joy, perseverance, it will lead you to maturity. And so as we're in the middle of these trials, we begin to try to think about joy and think about what the Lord's doing because we understand he's leading us to a place of a maturing faith. Now I want you to notice the little phrase James uses in verse 4. Pull that up for me please, Wanda. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Full effect. What, what does it mean to have its full effect? Well, it seems to mean that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, if you don't allow this process to take place, it's not going to have its full effect. You're going to kind of short-circuit it or, or, or short-change it, and you're not going to end up mature and complete the way the Lord wants you to be mature and complete. And so James is saying this, listen, there's this process you're walking through. It begins with joy of thought, joy of mind. It's going to lead you to this place of maturity, but you need to allow or let that steadfastness, let that process have its full effect. Now I'm going to say something to you I want you to hear, and it's going to be very challenging to you, but I, I need you to understand it based on the truth of God's word. The way you respond to trials matters. It's possible, and sometimes very likely, for you to go through a trial, not allow the Lord to work, not find joy, not find truth, not find hope, not find peace, not find maturity. It's very possible for you to go through that trial and not come out as a mature believer. Did you know that? It's possible for you to endure this trial, not having the right spirit, and not end up mature the way Christ desires you to be. 
So, so what if you go through trials with anger or bitterness or hatred or you kind of fill in the blank right there? What, what if you don't trust the Lord during your trial? What if you don't seek the Lord during your trial? What if you don't find a place of being able to think joyful thoughts and at least looking ahead to see what Christ is going to do? What if you don't have those thoughts in your mind? Well, I would say to you, if you go through a trial with anger and bitterness and hatred, never seeking the Lord, I would say to you, you're, you're failing that test. Why? Because the Lord says you've got to let this thing have its full effect. There's a process you've got to walk through in order for this to happen. And if you don't walk through this process, if you don't let it have its full effect, you're not going to be perfect, you're not going to be complete, you're not going to be mature in your faith. One of the commentaries I've been reading says it like this. James reminds his readers that God brings difficulties into believers' lives for a purpose. And that this purpose can be accomplished only if they respond in the right way to their problems. So as you walk into any trial, as you go through any trial, you've got two choices. I can either respond in joy, in maturity, and strengthening my faith and trusting the Lord. Or I can respond in bitterness and anger and walking away from Christ. But James says, if you want your faith to be mature and perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, you need to let this process have its full effect. I've got this kind of funny dream, and Amy laughs at me sometimes. I think she's beginning to believe me a little bit more and more. But I've got this strange dream that when I retire one of these days, I'm going to buy a sailboat and sail around the world. That's what I want to do. Now, the fact that I have no idea how to sail is irrelevant to me at this point. That's really... So that doesn't mean anything. Just this cool dream. You know, you see the sailboat and the wind blowing and out in some deserted island. I just, I think it'd be really cool. Well, a couple of Christmases ago, Amy said, you know, if this is ever really going to happen, you need to get a little sailboat and try to learn how to sail. And so she basically bought me a little sailboat for Christmas. It's a little 14 foot small little boat. It's got a couple of sails. Uh, so the, the idea is once you learn the principles on a small boat, you can learn them on a big boat. It's the same principle whether it's a 14-foot or a 50-foot boat. And so I take it out at West Point Lake a couple of times and tootle around and, and kind of learn the principles. But when I got it, we got a, just an old one, got it for next to nothing. We weren't going to sink a lot of money into something I didn't even know if I could do. So we bought an old, used little sailboat. And there was a lot of work that needed to be done to it, a lot of cleaning and repairs and and I just kind of found a lot of joy just kind of cleaning it up and repairing a few things and restoring some of the stuff. And the first thing I worked on was the rudder. The rudder was made of wood and it was probably about that big and about that tall. And it was just really damaged looking. It was old and worn down and mildewed and it was just not really pretty. And so I spent the first several weeks literally sanding that thing down. I had a, a hand sander and then sometimes I just used sandpaper and a little block. And it took me a couple of weeks to get through all the dirt and grime and all the old varnish and all the ugly stuff just to get down to the, to the wood. And then I cleaned it really well and I bought the, there's a very specific marine varnish. I didn't know this kind of stuff, but if you're going to use wood on a boat, you've got to use a very specific kind of varnish. And so I got this varnish and I started reading about it. And you read the back and it says, you know, you need to apply the instructions. Basically say, you know, after you sand it down to the bare wood, you clean it very well get all the sawdust off, you put a coat of varnish on, you let it sit for 24 hours because it's got to fully dry, lightly sand it down, and do that eight or ten more times. That's what it said. I need eight or ten coats of varnish on this thing. Now, one of my gifts is not patience. I'm not a patient guy. 
And so I try to figure, the first two days we're trying to figure out how I can short circuit this process because I'm not waiting two weeks to get this thing done. I got other things I got to do. I don't have time for this. I'm not interested. So I started watching the YouTube videos because you can learn like anything on YouTube and they're all experts, right? They all know exactly what they're talking about, obviously. So I watched all these videos, but the more I watch, you know, you see these guys up in Maine that have been building wood boats their whole life and they're like, you got to put 10 coats of varnish on. If you don't, it just won't work. And so I did, man. I, I sanded it down, and I cleaned it, and I varnished it, and I waited 24 hours. And I sanded it down, and I cleaned it, and I varnished it, and I waited 24 hours. And there's this process. It took me about two weeks to get, but when I finished, it was beautiful. And it, it brought out just the colors of the wood, and the shine on that thing was like glass. It was beautiful, and I was so proud of it. But I thought, you know, if, if I had short-circuited that process, if I had short-circuited that whole time, I wouldn't have ended up with what I wanted to end up. It would have been a lot easier for me on the front side, but I wouldn't have got what I wanted on the back side. And I thought, you know, sometimes it's like that with our trials, isn't it? See, see, the Lord can look at you and he can say, you know what, you're, you're kind of covered in some stuff right now and maybe it don't look all that great. You've got a lot of years of wear on you and there's a lot of things weighing you down. But if you'll just let me, the Lord says, I'm going to spend some time just kind of sanding that stuff off. And then I'm going to begin to clean it up. And then I'm going to start to put this varnish on you and I'm going to begin to bring out the beauty again. And then I'm going to do it again. I'm going to sand you off again and I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to varnish you again. I'm going to bring out some more beauty. And I'm going to sand you down and I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to varnish you. And week after week, after month, after month, after year, after year, the Lord does this in our hearts and our lives. And sometimes we say, that hurts. And this is taking too long, Lord. And, and I don't think I want to go through this process. And we short circuit that and we miss the blessing what the Lord has for us. Christ says, I want to do great things through you. I want to take kind of this yuck you've made of your life, which we all do. I want to take all the problems that you're dealing with and all the issues, and I want to help you clean those things up. I'm going to put you through some trial to do that. And if you'll just let me, if you'll find joy, and if you'll trust me, and if you'll mature in your walk, then when we finish with this process, you're going to be beautiful. And you're going to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Charles Spurgeon was an English pastor in London, mid-1850s. He said, seasons of severe trial. The Christian has nothing on earth that he can trust to and is therefore compelled to cast himself on his God alone. When his vessel is on its end beam and no human deliverance can avail, he must simply and entirely trusts himself to the providence and care of God. Now watch this. Happy storm that wrecks a man on such a rock as this. Oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and God alone. We like to short-circuit that process, don't we? We like to pray that the Lord would just calm the storm and not make us go through it. But sometimes Christ says, I'm bringing you through this storm. I'm bringing you through this trial. Because when you make it through, there's going to be something beautiful. See, here's the problem we have. We don't know how to do it. Lord, I'd like to feel this way. I'd like to walk with joy. 
I'd like to walk with faith. I'd like to walk with maturity, but I'm just not quite sure how to do it. James answers that question in verse 5. Pull it up if you would as we kind of wind this down this morning. Listen to what James says. He's just come out of this explanation of trial and joy and difficulty and perseverance and maturity. And then he poses this, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. By the way, maybe one of the greatest promises in scripture. (laughs) But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave by the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his Ways. Here's truth number three. If you're going to navigate the storms of life, if you're going to navigate the trials of life biblically, you need a joyful attitude, one. You need a maturing faith, two. And then number three, you need a believing heart. You need to believe that the Lord can actually do it. See, I love what James does here. And, and I love this verse because verse five, pull verse five back up for me if you would, please, just for a second. I bet many of you have read this verse before. I bet you've memorized it before. I bet you found great comfort in this passage over the years. I have as well. And we should continue to do that. But I just want to make a a note here that I think is awfully important. In the context of what James is writing here in James chapter 1, as he's walking us through trials and difficulties, I believe that he's giving us this verse in the context of a trial. In other words, if you don't know how to navigate through a trial, if you don't know how to find joy in a trial, if you're not quite sure how to persevere in a trial, if you're not sure what the Lord's doing in your life in the midst of the trial, if you're not quite sure and you need some wisdom, just ask the Lord. How cool is that? Because the scripture says to us, if you ask, he's going to give generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. See, as you go through a great trial, as you honestly seek the Lord, as you trust him with your life and your heart, when you ask him for guidance in the midst of that trial, he's going to give it to you. Because he wants to accomplish great things through you in your life. But here is the requirement. When you ask, you've got to have the faith to believe he's going to do it. So you can't just ask as a double-minded man and not believe it's going to happen. You've got to ask with a believing heart that as you walk through these trials, the Lord is going to bless you and use you and work in your life to bring you to a point of beauty and maturity so you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I am fully aware in a church this size that there are people that go through various trials. I'm fully aware that there are people sitting in here right now that are struggling through maybe the most difficult moment of your life. I'm fully aware that in a church this size, there are people that come every Sunday we meet and they struggle and they hurt and they need direction. And so we're going to end this morning with something we don't usually do. I want you to see a story of someone in our church that hasn't yet reached the end of the trial Because what we like to do oftentimes in churches is talk about the person that's been through the trial, great things have happened, the Lord blessed, the Lord healed, we tie a nice little bow on the top of it and we feel good about it. And praise the Lord, we should celebrate those times, but sometimes we go through the midst of these things and we're not quite sure how they're going to end up. And so for all of you that are struggling right now, going through a trial, not quite certain how it's going to end, I want you to watch this video. 
Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.